This evening I'd like to offer some reflections on what it means to trust in being. I always find it kind of interesting that uh, towards the end of the day in the retreat we come in for the talk and uh, it can often be the sense of uh, for many people is it's sort of like it'd be kind of nice to have something to lean against or to uh, relax and uh, certainly by the end of the day and the uh, day ends at you know, 20 past 9 um, at least it might have even ended earlier yesterday but today it'll probably make it till 20 past 9 we find ourselves often feeling or experiencing being on retreat is incredibly full, is incredibly demanding and so when there's a, a moment that we can uh, take some relief or gain some comfort we often and understandably uh, receive it with some gratitude and uh, even just the ringing of the bell at the end of the sitting there's often this palpable sense as I uh, commented earlier just just like wow that's nice it can be that it seems what we're doing here is a lot of work is really hard, is really demanding and there are many ways in which this is so the training of heart and mind, the cultivating of wisdom and compassion is a, a remarkable and challenging endeavour, no doubt about that and yet what also happens with the process is we tend to quite easily add to the challenges that are already there by our own tendency and habit of trying to make it happen trying to do this practice when in fact this practice is an invitation to learn what it means to be and to come to trust in the very fact of being the fact of our existence the fact of presence itself rather than relying on our, our efforts and our strategies and our techniques for adjusting, controlling or manipulating what is happening. It would probably be the case that if we were to describe to someone, you know, the first couple of days on a retreat, who'd never been to a retreat before, we said, oh, it was hard, yeah, I was, you know, seemed like a lot of struggle and at times I wondered if I could really make it through the sitting and let alone the whole day but to think of a week was just beyond me you know I, I couldn't see couldn't see my way through at all and I'd say oh gosh you know how long did it go on for you know oh, we were sitting till after nine o'clock in the evening and I'd, oh that's pretty late yeah yeah you know um what were you doing so well we sort of sat on a little cushion for a you know, three quarters of an hour or so and we got up and walked rather gently back and forth didn't have to go anywhere we came back and sat down for a while and then we got fed a meal and then did much the same thing in the afternoon they might be hard pressed to understand we might be hard pressed to understand what makes it so difficult, what makes it so tiring there's a rather wonderful children's story that I'm kind of fond of that uh, I think sheds a lot of light on this particular experience for us 
and it involves two friends, frog and toad. And I take a little liberties with the uh, story and the retelling. But in any event, Frog one day went to visit Toad. And Toad said, they were good friends. He said, oh, I'm happy to see you, Frog. Come, I've got something to show you. He led him out into the back of his house and to the garden. And there was a wonderful flower garden with many flowers of beautiful colours and shapes and exquisite perfumes. Frog looked with wide eyes. He said, oh, how lovely. Oh, how wonderful, Toad. I wish I had a garden like yours. And Toad said, well, you know, Frog, you can. Here are some seeds. Take them home. Plant them in the ground and take care of them and then you can have a garden. But I must warn you, having a garden was lots of work. So Frog was very excited. He ran, ran quickly back to his own home, dug a patch of soil, carefully planted the seeds and watered them. Then he sat down and waited. And nothing happened. So he waited a little bit longer and still nothing happened. So he thought just in case the seeds didn't quite know what was going on here, he could let them know by just saying, you know, seeds, you can start growing if you like. Still nothing happened. So in case he, they hadn't actually heard him, he said a little more loudly, seeds, you can grow, it's alright. Hmm, still nothing happened. Feeling a little impatient and frustrated, the uh, frog said more loudly this time, Seeds, it's time to grow! Still no response, and he yelled very loudly, Seeds, grow now! And uh, just then Toad calls out as he's coming down the path, What's all that noise? What's going on? Frog says, I was just telling my seeds it was time they started growing. I planted them, oh, it must be at least 20 minutes ago. And Toad said, oh, Frog, you can't shout at your seeds. You'll frighten them. Then they won't be able to grow. Toad looked very, sorry, Frog looked very crestfallen. He said, I didn't know you could frighten your seeds. What have I done? Oh, no. He sat down and looked at this little plot of freshly turned soil with the seeds in it. And then he remembered after some time that when he was just young, just a little tadpole, his mother used to tell him stories when he was frightened at night. And he told stories to his seeds all through that day, but nothing happened. Then he thought he didn't want them to be afraid at night. He thought he'd better stay up with them. And so he played music for them all through the night. Still nothing happened. So in the morning he danced for his seeds through the day. And the following night he uh, sang songs for his seeds but still nothing happened and in the morning Frog was exhausted he said these must be the most frightened seeds ever I give up and he lay down to sleep and as he slept the rain gently fell the sun shone he slept for a day and a night and in the morning he awoke to the sound of Toad's voice saying, Frog, Frog, wake up. Look. He opened his eyes. He looked at his little plot of earth and there were tiny little green shoots poking up through the soil. You see, said Toad, now you will have a lovely garden too. You're right, said Frog. I will. But you know, just like you said, it was a lot of hard work.
One of the phenomena that's almost entirely reliable in meditation is that we will, nothing's absolutely reliable, but uh, is that we will at times find ourselves, particularly when becoming established in practice, either yelling at ourselves or somehow trying to sort of, uh, in a different but equally uh, ineffective way, somehow talk ourselves into transformation. The process of unfoldment, the process of awakening that we enter into in the meditative journey is one that bears its fruit not as a result of our attempt to make something happen or to produce a result. And we are asked to learn to trust in being. This really underpins or forms the foundation of the way of meeting our experience that we are learning, that we are cultivating, that we are exploring in our meditative practice. It can be we come to a retreat because our life is so full, so busy, so pressured, so demanding, in so many ways, and what we think we would really like to do is get a break from all of that. And quite a valid and not inappropriate desire. And yet what we can often find and see is that when we come on a retreat, that habit of having something to do, of getting busy, and we, rather than working on things out there, we find ourselves working on ourselves, getting busy with ourselves. We see this habit just extends itself into the situation of the retreat. And it's really not easy for us, actually, often. It's not easy to let go of that tendency, of that habit, of that pressure, to have to be engaged in a process of doing, which is actually remarkably hard work. We can notice it because we'll be involved in something that includes or leads to evaluation and comparison, measurement, where we we can see, or we believe we can see, that we've improved, like how many breaths in a row we're able to be mindful of. Now sometimes people come and, oh, I can only be mindful of two breaths before my mind wanders off. Actually, not bad really, could, could be only one. Sometimes people report only half a breath before the mind wanders. And yet what happens very quickly is we make some kind of measurement. We say, that's not enough, it needs to be more. Of course, wonderful if we're able to be attentive for several breaths in a row. And if we're not finding ourselves able to connect for even a whole breath, we may need to give a little bit more focus and energy to that intention, to connect with our breathing. But the way we tend to take the experience and use it to measure and to evaluate ourselves is really what or our view or perception of ourselves is really what undermines the process. It's what takes us into the realm of that which we're actually seeking to free ourselves from. Because 
for most of us, our sense of being okay, our sense of validity in the world, acceptability, is dependent on what we do, what we produce, which is always something that can be measured, that can be compared, that we can say this is more or less, good enough or not good enough. And when we're dependent upon results, when we're dependent on succeeding, in order to feel okay with ourselves, then we really find it almost impossible to step out of that habit and that cycle. We find it really difficult to just allow ourselves to be. And how many of you have noticed yourself trying to be a good meditator? Right? Trying to come up with a good experience that you'll report at the interview that the teacher will hopefully give you a sort of a double gold star for. And at the same time being quite worried and afraid that actually what we've been experiencing or what's been happening is really quite wrong or the thing that shouldn't have been happening. Sometimes to the extent that people sort of almost feel bad for their experience more than almost actually we feel bad for our experience and yet what stands out more and more as we sit here and we look and we feel and we experience and we explore what it means to be present is that much of what's happening much of what's unfolding and is revealed we're not actually making it happen we're not actually deciding that we will have this experience and then producing it because if we could do that, then of course we'd have all decided to have a wonderful, happy, peaceful, easy, joyful and perhaps occasionally exhilarating meditation. And I don't know of anyone who can just decide to have one of those and get one. Certainly not many people come into the uh, interview and report that that's what just happened. I mean, sometimes it happens, but not in that way. Not born out of making it happen. So if we're trying to do good meditation, then we find ourselves really quickly reacting to what's happening. Sometimes, sometimes with excitement because actually we've managed to be present, we're connected. We're actually starting to feel the mind calming, the body at ease. And it's like, this is great, it's finally happening. I've done it, I've done it. And we get so excited that of course in the very sense and belief that I've done it, we've lost any contact with where we are and we're busy thinking about how much more of it we're going to do and you know considering uh, perhaps a long retreat or possibly shaving our head and the whole you know going into the into the monastery and the whole momentum of that doing and the sense of self that's involved with it has taken us completely away from that simple experience of actually connecting and being present for a little while or of course we uh, find something difficult arising we're struggling we can't be present the mind is distracted or we're dull and tired and we're kind of, at the same time as that's going on, there's a certain sort of heaviness or judgment or blaming. Oh, you've blown it, you've messed up, no good. Maybe next retreat, maybe next lifetime you'll get it. But this one you're just, you know, not getting there. And you can see how that takes the energy away from us. And again, how we disconnect from this actual simple experience of, oh, right now it's fuzzy or right now it's hard to connect with the breath. That happened. That's okay. That doesn't mean we can't be present. 
because what we're invited to do in that moment is to be present with what it's like when we can't connect so easily when we get lost or when we react to that fact we can often get involved also in the process of comparing ourselves to others sitting there wondering, you know, well how's everyone else doing? sometimes we think, you know I'm doing pretty good, you know. <laughs> doing pretty steady. You know, we look around and everyone else looks kind of floppy or sort of dozy or you know. And we feel like, wow, you know, doing great and you know, as we get up to uh, walk out of the uh, meditation hall we find ourselves almost tripping over a cushion and uh, you know, we realise actually maybe we weren't quite so advanced as we might have imagined in that moment. Or of course, in a moment where it's difficult, we open our eyes and look around because, you know, had enough of this. And uh, everyone else is sitting so calm, so still, so bright, so serene. We think, wow, they're all really amazing. They're all probably about to be awakened. <laughs> and me, I'm just, you know, I think I'm about to fall asleep, basically. And yet, of course, we can be experiencing both of those views within 15 minutes of each other. And one moment we're looking at everyone else thinking they're really wonderful and we're really no good. Or everyone else is really great and we're, sorry, or we're doing really well and everyone else is not so good. That process of comparing fascinates us. It attracts us. And it means that we then have to turn our activity, when we're caught in this, turn our activity, which is the practice, into the basis for trying to give ourselves this positive self-reflection I'm doing well, at least as well as everyone and hopefully even possibly maybe better and at the same time in that hope we have the fear that maybe I'm not going to do very well maybe I'm going to have to confess at the end of the meditation retreat that I actually failed and I didn't actually manage to be present for you know, even more than two breaths and that'll be it and everyone will be pointing their finger at me and saying, "Mm, you know, they failed I'm kind of exaggerating that a little bit, but sometimes it's like that in the way we relate to ourselves and to our experience. And it's really useful to become conscious of it, because otherwise it tends to drive what's going on. It tends to make the meditation into work. It's hard work if we're always trying to produce a result. And the tension that it generates is a significant contributor to the discomfort in our bodies at times. I mean, body sitting here, it's not under pressure. It feels comfortable. Then after some time it feels uncomfortable. Some of that's due to the passage of time. Without changing the posture, the passage of time, discomfort arises. It's kind of natural. That will happen if we're lying on a comfortable mattress, equally as sitting in a meditation posture. But some of it is to do with the fact that we start to tighten, because we're trying to force something to happen. It's got nothing to do with our muscles and our muscles tightening are not going to help actually. And it doesn't have much to do with our willpower either. And our willpower isn't going to make it happen. So to notice if that's going on. Because if we're constantly seeking to give ourselves a positive reflection in which we feel okay about ourselves, at the same time we're going to be constantly afraid of getting a negative reflection in which we don't feel happy with ourselves or okay 
If we live within that dynamic, there's no place we can rest. There's nowhere to stop. Because no matter what happens, the urge and the seeking for the positive reflection and the fear and the avoidance of the negative reflection, sense of success or failure, will actually keep us going, keep us moving, keep us driven. And there's no peace in that. There's no place for us to simply abide. And it's useful also actually to reflect on how we do it because what we tend to do is extract from the many different things that are happening something particular and decide this is what's most important and this is what we're then going to measure. This is what will mean I'm a, shall we say, good meditator as if I can be really concentrated. And we really encourage and emphasize steadiness and focus of mind. It's really beneficial. There's no doubt about that. But then, if we get into a place of saying, I've got to achieve a certain level, or this is the only thing that's important, we're missing something. Because it's equally important to see what degree of interest we bring to the process. What degree of receptivity and kindness we can meet our experience with when it's difficult or when it's confusing or when we're not able to be so easily present. And these are equally as important as how many moments we string together of mindfulness. The steadying and deepening of the mind does happen. And it's born of our inclining towards it but not pushing in that direction. It's like we incline towards it. It's like water. Water, you don't, you don't, if you try and push water, I don't know if you try and push water anywhere. It really doesn't work. What, what you can do with water is kind of guide it and let it flow. And that's really what we learn to do in practice. We're, we're orienting towards being present, focused, connected, receptive, interested, engaged. And yet if we get too much involved with measuring how well we're doing it at all, that's a whole different mindset. That's a whole different approach than what is actually really going to be the most useful in this context. So, things to do today. You may have seen the... Uh, on the cover of the Guy House program a couple of years ago and used to be actually a, a little poster at the old house that was one of like that sort of one finds in sort of offices things to do today list of 10 priority projects and uh, this particular list went uh, things to do today one breathe in two breathe out three breathe in kind of interesting to reflect on that because you know if one didn't manage that then none of the None of the rest of things we might be prioritizing would actually be all that meaningful. And to really be with that, a simple breath. Just to be that simple. What would that mean for us? It's not easy because actually it would involve 
releasing the illusion of control. And this is really scary. This is really hard. This is a large part of what challenges us in the process of meditation practice. Because we are asked to surrender to life, to meet it wholeheartedly and unconditionally. And to do so, we have to allow it to be what it is, as it is. And this generates, or this brings forth from us, for many of us at least, a sense of vulnerability, a sense of out of control. And yet, the things that are most important to us, condition of our heart, our mind, our body, these we cannot control as an act of willpower. We can't just decide, my body will be like this, my mind will be like this. When, mind, when the mind is agitated, we can't just decide, mind be calm. When mind is calm, we can't just decide, mind be agitated and have it happen. It won't have that effect. And the very nature of the meditative process in which we engage with the sense of presence, of awakened consciousness, that knows, that is aware of what's happening. We turn towards it, it's there, always. When we turn towards it, it's there. It's kind of remarkable. And then at some point it seems we're not there. We're not quite sure where that, what's happened because we're not normally there when it happens, that we're not there. <laughs> but at some point we realise we're not there. And that's a very interesting moment because we weren't there to know in the mo- previous moment that we weren't there. That's by definition what's happening. We were somewhere else. And then somehow it's almost like the light comes back on. And we know, oh, I'm here. In the story about that situation or in this reaction to my discomfort or thinking about lunch or whatever, we realise, I'm here. In that moment, it can be that we turn towards, that we react, ah, blown it again. Judgment, disappointment, whatever, reactivity. Or it could be, wow, look, I'm back. Awareness is here. This life is conscious again. Because it's not like we're operating the switch. All the intention and the the wholehearted endeavour that we engage in contributes to that, for sure. It's not that we're without an influence in the process. Coming back again and again, that happens. And yet there's something about it that's ineffable, that's rather mysterious, that's hard to pin down. And to actually allow ourselves (coughs) to be open to this aspect of what's happening is to actually settle back, to not be leaning into our experience, trying to go somewhere or get something, but actually to settle back into where we are, settling back into mind, heart, body, breath, this moment right here. That sense of just settling back, it's just like, oh, we can breathe out. And we don't have to get somewhere else. 
And yet when we trust that that quality of simply being in itself is the basis from which the transformation that we seek and yearn for, perhaps, can come. There's a, a haiku that says, Only trust. Don't believe, flutter down just like that. That moment where we let go into just where we are, where we're not trying to be somewhere, someone, or something else. There's a sense of releasing that is touched, that is evoked, that is deepened in that moment. A sense of releasing that actually allows us to come to earth, to find our ground, to flutter down, we could say. Of course, in the fluttering, it's probably a little scary. I don't know how leaves feel about the process, actually. You know, kind of caught in the wind sometimes. It might be a bit worrying. And yet, the process is one of coming down to ground. And once one comes to ground, once we find our ground, then there is no prospect of falling. That doesn't make any sense when we've landed. So the process of cultivating attention, of again and again connecting with where we are, steadying, stabilizing the mind and heart by attending to the breath, attending to the body, noticing when we're drawn to other experience, noticing when we get lost in unconscious thinking. And being really clear in that, that we're not giving in to the continuance of distraction or indulgence in fantasy or reactivity, but that, that insofar it's already happened by the time we notice it, that there's really also no point in struggling with that fact. Because we're already here again. And we can actually rejoice in that. In a quiet way. Just, huh, here we are. Being. That quality of being is not given a lot of good press in the modern world. We're very much told and sold the view very strongly that uh, it is our doing that counts, it is our busyness that matters, it is our results that define who and what we are. And yet what we notice when we engage in that process is that it never comes to an end. And it doesn't, because it's not actually taking us back to what is most true. It's actually really not necessarily taking us away from it either. But it certainly is quite effective in distracting us from it. 
Being gives us no guarantees of outcome. When we just allow ourselves to rest, we don't know what's going to happen. We have to take that risk. There is no guarantee as to what will happen. But it is peaceful. It is peaceful when we allow ourselves to just land where we are. And consciously, caringly engage with that moment, that experience. And all the seeking to produce results and the striving and the effort that generates, actually that doesn't guarantee results either, as we've probably noticed in our lives. That we're not actually that much more in control when we're trying to be in control. We just manage to conveniently not notice that that's what's happening, that it's not in our control. And this is something that the Buddha suggested we reflect on again and again. Those things that are really close and important to us. Our heart, our mind, our body. They're not in our control. So it doesn't make sense to try and control them in the way that we're used to. <coughs> and perhaps we can just begin to rest in the acknowledging of what's happening, in the meeting, in the connecting with what's happening. Without having to use it to somehow build ourselves up or knock ourselves down. And when we notice that process going on, equally to just acknowledge that, without judging or blaming the fact that sometimes we're trying to build ourselves up or reactively knocking ourselves down. And just notice how things happen. Because things happen. Pretty reliably. And our work and practice is actually to notice what's happening. And as we do so, we'll start to understand, we start to see that they're not happening randomly. Things are not happening randomly. There are always causes, conditions. Lawful basis for what happened. And so in understanding that, we learn what will support the deepening and the development of that which is wholesome and beneficial. And that will, that which will not give support to that which is unwholesome or not beneficial. And that is a foundation in that process the quality of attention that we give is the catalyst that brings about the transformation we think. In seeking for peace, in seeking for well-being, harmony, Often we think this will come when our experiences have been organised into being that which we want and not being that which we don't want. This is a kind of attractive prospect, but uh, unfortunately an impossible one. We've probably all noticed that inevitably 
Some of the time it's what we like and some of the time it's not. And that's just how it is. If we believe that getting it a certain way is the basis for our happiness, our well-being, and is the basis for peace and freedom, then I think we are unlikely to find them. But if we come to understand that in fact it is it is the very quality of being itself which meets our experience in which that peace and that well-being and that harmony is to be discovered then we're engaged in a process that isn't about producing something or getting somewhere or doing something but much more in a process of discovering, of exploring, of investigating what's actually here what's actually happening already True stillness is not the absence of inner or outer activity but the quality of being that can meet each and every experience that can meet all experience without needing to fix or to manipulate without using them to draw conclusions about who or what we are which isn't to say, of course, that we can't learn from our experience, that we don't usefully come to understand some of the patterns and tendencies of our minds and of our lives through observing and through connecting with what actually arises within us, with how we react or respond to situations. Of course, we can learn a lot in that way. But that's one aspect of the practice, and one that perhaps we're more familiar with the idea of understanding our process is not so unusual but to understand being this is perhaps rarer less common as an endeavour as an undertaking and how to engage in it if by definition we're invited or encouraged not to do it one can't do being attractive an idea as it might seem. And it's important to understand that this isn't about passivity, this isn't about somehow not engaging with what's happening. It's not about becoming a victim or simply allowing ourselves to be steamrolled by life but about about having the courage to face our life having the courage to face the way it actually is and having in that the, uh, the willingness to engage in what can actually be a considerable undertaking 
to not be carried away by our habitual reactivity. When we sometimes hear of being about and talk of non-doing, we think, oh, nothing to do. Well, that's nice. I'll just uh, kick back and have a good time. I can uh, you know, go enjoy lying in the sun all day rather than just at lunchtime. And yet it's not about that because what we see is how much we are unconsciously doing in our reactivity and our grasping towards one thing and pushing something else away. How busy we get, how engaged we get, so quickly and easily. And it's actually an immense effort that's required of us to see and to release the grip of that compulsive habit, that compelling pattern of behaviour that perhaps we spent many years refining and developing and cultivating with encouragement <coughs> from friends, family and the world at large. So we're in many ways being asked to go against the stream, to be still. It's like standing still in flowing water. At some level we feel the momentum of our habit, of our history. And rather than trying to stop the momentum, we just stay steady in the face of it. And inevitably, over time, that momentum exhausts itself because we're no longer feeding it. And fighting it, of course, is just another form of feeding. So to actually face the unknowable, mysterious, fact that we're here, born without choosing, to one day die, probably not in accordance with our control. To face this moment that we're in, where we suddenly are experiencing whatever it is, this mind state, maybe it's happy, maybe it's sad, this bodily sensation, maybe it's pleasant, maybe it's painful, maybe it's boring. This breath, maybe it's sweet and smooth and silky. Maybe it's harsh and hard and horrible. But this is the moment that we're in. If we're not trying to do something with it, if we're not trying to make something out of it, if we're willing to be in the space of a very engaged and conscious receptivity in which we are actually touching into where we are without an agenda, without an expectation, without a demand, then what quite naturally happens is we're able to respond. Response comes out of this quality of being not out of our agendas, not out of our reactions. So that the, the sense of just landing in where we are, not trying to manipulate. This is actually the basis for skillful response. And this is simply what comes when we touch that quality. There's a 
another haiku I, I love that says sitting quietly doing nothing spring comes and the grass grows by itself doing nothing sitting quietly sounds familiar and yet the process of (coughs) the seeds of our heart (coughs) the wisdom, the compassion the kindness and the care that lies within us these seeds grow according to the conditions that are supportive for them and we're asked to we're asked to allow them the space to do what they need to do (coughs) to actually trust in being to connect with our life to connect with where we are what we see is that when we're actually present and something arises, we respond. We don't actually become passive. We don't necessarily become a victim at all, which is what we fear will happen if we don't control, if we don't make that effort to manipulate, to fix. What actually happens is if we're really present, when something difficult arises, it doesn't mean we become overwhelmed by it. Controlling might suggest we try and suppress it or Samadhi it away sometimes. We try and be really people often comment we notice we're trying to not experience the difficult by being concentrated. It doesn't work. It doesn't work that way. <coughs> when we actually meet the place that's difficult, we're not really there for it. What can arise and what does quite naturally is a sense of caring or compassion for that difficult experience we're encountering. And this isn't something we do. Like we think, oh, now we'll be nice to it. Sometimes that's a useful response as well. But from that place of arriving in ourselves, it's actually what happened. It's it's the natural response. And likewise when something, when reactivity perhaps arises in the mind, we don't have to push it away. When we're really there with it, we see that this isn't actually how I want to live. I don't want to live in patterns and cycles of of greed or of aversion and anger they don't interest me because we see that they're actually unsatisfying when something arises that's wholesome that's beneficial that quality of presence that deepens some sense of bright interest or just tenderness and we recognise that it's wholesome we don't have to package it up and sort of take it home as a trophy we don't have to do anything with it, just in meeting it, in experiencing it, in recognizing the wholesomeness. <coughs> in recognizing the wholesomeness of that quality or that experience, it actually deepens in our heart. It deepens into our being. It becomes more steady, more sustained, more accessible. Not because we said, hey, it's great, I've done it, now how do I keep it? But because we actually simply met it and we're there
So just as a wise gardener would plant the seeds and water them and then trust, knowing that the nature of seeds in the soil with warmth and moisture is to begin to grow in their own time and way. So we as wise practitioners can practice in that spirit where we plant the seeds of attentiveness, of kindness, of interest in the way that we engage and meet each moment and each experience and trust that the fruit of this will reveal itself in its own way and own time. In the process of being, in learning what it means to be, which isn't an intellectual learning, it's a cellular learning. <coughs> it's something in that sense where we just allow ourselves to arrive where we are, without having to worry about where we were or where we will be, where the past and the future are not so important as the present. Doing is always concerned with the world of past and future, whereas being is exclusively concerned with what is now. And what Dharma teachings, what the, the Buddha's teachings are pointing us to, is to discover and understand what it means to be. What is the foundation and the basis of our existence? The very nature of life, we could say. To understand this, we need to enter it wholeheartedly, with eyes open, without agendas or demands. And this we can learn to do. So could we sit quietly for a minute or two please? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.